All right, welcome to the show this morning. Super stoked to have Eric Balchunas on with me today. The guy knows his shit about ETFs probably better than anybody. And I'm just judging by the fact that he's the only ETF expert that I follow, and he's constantly being cited in articles and shit that I read. Uh, He knows his shit. I'm hoping for a crash course from him today, and I got a lot of questions for him. Uh, First and foremost, hello, welcome to 2022. Happy to be here. I want to shout out the people that make this podcast possible. They are my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. First and foremost, my friends over at JM Bullion. They are my exclusive gold and silver providers. I have been buying gold and silver bullion from only JM Bullion for, I don't know, years now since they started supporting the podcast. Not just because they support me, but they turn my orders around quickly. I love the way that they do business. They've been in business for like a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. And QTR podcast listeners have their own dedicated rep there, Laura. You can email her, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. If you don't feel like going through the website, if it's your first time buying gold and silver bullion, if you have questions, reach out to Laura. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. She will make sure that you get taken care of. Otherwise, enjoy browsing their site. They always have uh, gold and silver bullion in stock. Their inventory is always, in my opinion, the best out of all of the other sites. I've used other sites before. And I just love them. They're huge supporters of the podcast. I hope that you love them too. And uh, I hope you give them a play on my behalf. I appreciate that shit. Check out JM Bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg. Doomberg is one of my favorite new sub stacks to read. It is 100% free. They are very sharp. They look at the market from a skeptical lens, just like we do. Um, And it doesn't cost anything to read their analysis. And so I think you should check it out. You can subscribe 100% free. The link to Doomberg is in my podcast description. Uh, Highly recommend them as a read. I really do. Doomberg and my buddy Kubiko, my favorite sub stacks to read. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and other people who have IQs far into the triple digits, unlike myself, to help you preserve your wealth in the world of -of out-of-control central banks. Sounds good if you can deliver it, George. Not going to lie to you. Look, George is an honest guy just like I am trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the world. Uh, You know, he's not trying to sell you anything. He's not trying to recommend anything, but he is trying to break down and explain the world of central banking and macroeconomics to people that want to learn. He's like my podcast, just with less cursing, less drinking, more knowledge, less dick and fart jokes, and more information. So really, I mean, you should basically turn me off now and just listen to him is what I'm saying. Rebel Capitalist Pro is well worth it. I've gone on George's forums uh, they're very informative. He does several live Q&As uh, several times a week with people like Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, you know, staples in the industry, well-known people. Uh, check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. The link is in my podcast description. Show some love to my buddy George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist. My friends Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, my dear, dear friends, also longtime supporters of the podcast, have a little product called The Steam Room, which I think is one of the best ways to track money coming into the options market, which is, of course, less liquid than the equities market and sometimes can telegraph moves in the equities market. The Steam Room is a piece of software they've been working on for a decade now that I think is aesthetically pleasing to look at and delivers a lot of value if you use it correctly. Look, Wall Street Jesus and Sang Lucci, these guys were the original gangsters of, you know, unusual options activity. Before that was a staple in every service, these guys were pointing it out. They were reading the tape. They were reading the flow. They were taking that information and turning it around and handing it to their subscribers. So they've been doing it longer than almost anybody. And I believe that they're probably doing it better than anybody right now still. Not only that, Lucci's a great guy. He's an honest person to do business with. I can recommend him. Reach out to any of these guys. Lucci, George Gammon, Doomberg, JM Bullion. They're all in my podcast description. Shout them out. Tell them QTR sent you. You want a free trial or whatever. They will work with you and make sure that if you are interested in their shit, that uh, that you get a look at it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, longtime supporters, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy, 
shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my kind friend Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, wishing you guys a happy new year, all of you. I also want to wish a happy new year to some of my newest patrons. Gator Patriot is in the house. Matthew Miller is still here. Travis Bolster, Justin Reynolds, Brett Moore, thank you so much. Joe Dierte, Abinash Panda, thank you, my friend. Richard Southwell, Felipe F., Daniel Richard, I appreciate you guys very much. And some patrons that have been with me for a while, Nick Grinup's based tradesman is in the house. How about Mr. Quinn Levin, Matthew Allen, Josh Hot Butter, Luke, and Matt Weaver are still here. And some people that have been with me for a little while longer, going back a couple years now, like uh, Lucci. <laughs> hey, thanks, Sanglucci. Andrew March. <laughs> Andrew March, what's up, dude? Paul Brennan. Minarchus one thank you so much. Dale Short, I see you, brother. NM, still in the house. You know who you are. Patrick T. Flynn and Flo Algo. The folks from Flo Algo are still in the house. I love the guys at Flo Algo. Thank you so much for your continued support. Also, this podcast finally brought to you by my own blog, Fringe Finance. I'm on there almost daily. Thank you to everybody that has subscribed or dropped me your email address. I'm trying to put out good content and I want today's interview to be an extension of that content, uh, which is why I have Balchunas on. This podcast is not financial advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I hold no registrations, no licenses. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Please do your own research and do it elsewhere. I am notoriously, we're going to talk about Kathy Wood. Probably we'll talk about ARC on this podcast. You know, I own ARC puts. I own puts on the NASDAQ. Uh, You should just always assume I have some type of monetary interest in whatever it is that we're talking about because I talk about the things that interest me and I invest in the things that interest me. Uh, So always assume that. Again, none of this is a recommendation. Although I do recommend a three drink minimum as long as you are of legal drinking age. Uh, used to be a two-drink minimum, but, you know, inflation. It's a bitch, folks. Sometimes it works to your benefit when it comes to shots of brandy. Let's get started. All right, my brother from the city of brotherly love, Mr. Eric Balchunas. He is a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg. Uh, He has over a decade of experience working with ETF data, designing new functions, writing ETF research for the Bloomberg Terminal, uh, he's quoted in like all kinds of articles. Bloomberg quotes him all the time. Zero Hedge quotes him all the time. Uh, and uh, he's an author, too. He wrote uh, The Institutional ETF Toolbox and The Bogle Effect. How's that for a bio of you, Eric, from what I could pull up on Amazon? <laughs> hey, it sounds like I'm, I'm actually doing stuff. Is all that shit up to date? Is everything up to yeah, date? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's good. All right. Are you in Philadelphia now? Are we like neighbors like at the moment or what? What's up? No, I'm actually down in uh, Florida. My my dad lives on the Panhandle, so I come down here quite a bit. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm down here with my oldest son, and uh, it's a rainy day, so I'm just chilling at home. Um, probably going to go, um, I don't know, maybe to the outlet mall, and then uh, there's a bunch of football TV, so we'll probably yeah. just watch some of those bowl games and, and, and do that. And Sometimes around here, like the weather – kind of just gets good real quick so it's possible it gets sunny we'll go right to the beach yeah and that's how it works down south man one minute it's you know 95 and sunny with like 100 percent humidity and the next minute you're in the <laughs> middle of a hurricane it's true it's though true. <clears throat> it is yeah are you near panama city at all yes very close so i'm in um miramar beach which is right next next to destin in panama city okay back in a long long time ago i was in a band that used to tour in a different life and we always stopped at this uh, bar in Panama City. It was called J Crashes. Maybe if any of my listeners are from Panama City, they might know it. But what a fucking hooting, hollering, oh boy, the good old boy down south, good time this was. They didn't know anything about our band. They didn't know shit about us. You know, we were like a punk rock band that stopped in and toured at this bar where basically people, you know, listened to Leonard Skinner and drank Budweiser and shot pool and smoked Marlboro Reds. <laughs> And we showed up the first day like a bunch of 20-year-old kids. Like, hey, uh, we're here, uh, you know, we're here to set our stuff up for the show. And instead of being like, you know, get that crap out of here, they're like, yeah, we got 22-ounce beers here. Come on in. I'll never forget. They had these big-ass glasses of beer. Good times in Panama City is the point. Anyways. Yeah, people down here are really nice. Like, I, I'm probably going to move down here at some point. Um, it's a lot of sunshine. The water's like um, on the Gulf coast here it's like the caribbean so it's got this green emerald look 
Yeah. Uh, the sands are white. Um, it's it's beautiful. I like that southern touch. I will say Panama City back in the day and even around here was really the redneck Riviera. It has it's definitely <laughs> been like gentrified in a sort of Starbucksian kind of way. They're now like all these, uh, you know, uh, kind of shopping areas are being, um, you know, put up. It's definitely blowing up a little bit. Um, I guess unfortunately, but it was inevitable because it's so nice. Let me ask you a question. You live in South Philly, right? I do. Okay. Or like Bella Vista area? Well, Bella Vista, yeah. So it's sort of like on the edge of South. Let me ask you a question. Totally off topic. Didn't plan on asking you this, but do you have a fucking coffee shop down there that opens earlier than like 6 a.m.? Because, (laughs) you know, look, I have a condo in Old City. The, you know, the closest coffee shops to me are Old City Coffee, Cafe Olay, which I really like on uh, 3rd Street, and there's a Starbucks at 3rd and Arch. And the Starbucks is supposed to open at 5 a.m., but they're fucking never there at 5 in the morning. They're always, you know, I go there at 5 a.m. I'm up very <laughs> early. They're never there, and they're never open. Yeah. Cafe Olay and Old City Coffee, they don't even open, Eric, until 8 o'clock in the morning. It's like, yeah. how can you be a coffee shop and not open until 8 o'clock? You know, people that are productive, that are drinking coffee, their day is halfway over at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. There's... A- there was a cafe that opened up right around the corner for me and it didn't open until 8 a.m. And I was, I, I thought that was so weird. I'm like, if your main thing is coffee, why on earth wouldn't you be open at like 4 30 or five? It, I don't get it. Um, I think, you know, Philly in general, is just a little lazier than most cities. Like even like the bat, the baggage claim at the airport that, you know, everything's just a oh, little, fucked up. Um, but that's, it's part of its charm. It's why it's a little cheaper <laughs> than uh, New York City, which is pretty close. Um, and it's just kind of what you get. Um, so I find that weird, though. It's a missed opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, I, we make our own coffee now. Yeah, well, you got that little hot dog stand down by the baggage claim at the airport. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Which you need because the baggage claim in Philadelphia, for nobody, anybody that hasn't flown into the fucking airport here, is just... <laughs> I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's you a, might have to kill some time. It's a free-for-all. Not only do you have to wait, but, like, oftentimes the screens that are on top of the baggage carousels, yeah. they're all blank. Or yeah. you'll yeah. see, like, your incoming flight is supposed to be on one carousel and your luggage yeah. comes out on the other side of the room. So, you know... Yeah, and and people are all confused. And then there's at least one or two people who work for the airport just standing there. Oh, no idea. Like, looking at their phone or whatever, like, just not bothered by the mass confusion going on <laughs> and the hot dog stand isn't down there as a convenience i mean there's a couple of vending machines down there too yeah that's literally because people need to survive i mean they're yeah. just like they're I've, I've been in that building and went to the hot dog stand waiting for baggage and then like gotten hungry again before my luggage came in you know i've been flying out of that airport for fucking two decades and I have, yeah. I still have no idea what's going on. That's funny. I'm not the only person. I've never talked about that. Yeah, it's this. I I would say Philly, uh, the infrastructure is so so, and that's part of the trade off for the um, you know everything's half as much as it is in New York. Yeah. So it's like a value stock. It is. It is. Except like uh, in my old neighborhood down at, uh, I used to live at 11th and Wharton, and uh, oh, what a difference in that area over the last, I was just talking to somebody yesterday that lives down there in the last like 15 years. I mean the, the triangle tavern, I don't know. Do you know where the triangle tavern is by the Acme? Yeah. My, my dad actually took, took me there a couple of times when I was young and now it's completely reformed. It's like more hipsterized now. Right. Oh my God, Eric. Yeah. They used to not even open. Like they would open, like there would be a bartender there. The yeah. scene 15 years ago there was the bar would open. There would be a bartender there there would be bar stools. There were yeah. no taps attached to the draft line. So you had like three <laughs> things of, of taps with no uh, draft heads on them and nothing hooked up to them. And they, they didn't even turn the lights on or take the chairs down in the dining room. It was just to-go beer only, you know, and that was it. And so, you know, I come back. I go back there after all this time and I go down there. You know, it's still the Triangle Tavern. But there, there's kids out there eating veggie burgers and like, you yeah. know, I'm like, oh my god, what a what a yeah. difference! Totally. My my dad used to hang there with this my uncle Sammy. Mm-hmm. My uncle Sammy had loose mob ties, and that's where they hung out. And they would like he would, they would put the they 
put mussels in the dryer to clean them and shit. Like it was, and they just, but they had really good pasta. It when I saw the movie The Irishman, it yeah. made me think of the couple times I went to the Triangle Tavern as a kid. <laughs> um, but it's kind of cool they kept the name, although it is not the old, old Triangle Tavern. No, it isn't. It isn't. And that salon next door, I think it's called yeah. Violet Salon. You know, yeah. I, I used to go in there all the time, and it was funny because you could get they would give you a haircut. They'd give you like uh like a nice like ten minute like shoulder and back massage. They would give you a manicure and a pedicure for like fifty dollars in addition to the haircut and everything else. And you would go downstairs, which is like where you get the pedicures. Yes, you know, I've got yeah. a pedicure, I can admit that. And it would be like me and there were there were like five other seats and they were all big fat Italian men down there, all reading like, you know, the fucking horse race magazine yes. for the day or checking the sports lines, uh, you know, with their, love it. with their feet in the, uh, yes. in the soapy water, getting, you know, all the old Italian <laughs> men. And when you walk down Pashyunk, you know, I forget. You still get some of that. I mean, there's, there's definitely a change. You can feel it. There is still a touch of that. Like at the uh, Italian, um, that was like the Italian market parade. Yeah. And you still get some of the old guys come out in those times in the sausage sandwiches and stuff. So there's definitely a touch of that still, which is cool, but it's, it's definitely now in this sort of conflict between other cultures and, uh, it's yeah. just changing. It was interesting too living there because I would always walk down Pashunk and be like, ah, you know, I forget what the cheesesteak place was right at like Pashunk and broad, but it was closed down, but it looked like a nice piece of property. You know, it looked like maybe business had boomed there back in the day. I don't really know what it was. Um, but I would walk down Pashunk and just be like, man, like, you know, it's such a shame. There was, there was, the Pope was there and, and the cantina had just opened. Um, and there was a place called Stogies or something or like Joe Stogies or whatever, you know, and that was it. And I'd always say, man, you know, I wonder if they're going to develop this and then sure as shit, you know, I come back some years later and it's, uh, it's the hot ticket item to live down there. It's it's trendy to live down there. It's so developed i actually went to you know those um those what are they called uh where you go into the room and they give you clues uh what's the um, escape room solve escape rooms they have an eight 80s escape room right on passion and broad area and i actually <laughs> went there for my for my 40th birthday we had a fun time but that's there's nothing more hipster than an 80s escape room. That's Especially how much that is. when in the 80s, there were probably actual fucking escape rooms down there. You know what I mean? There were monsters <laughs> fucking like tying people up yes. in buildings down there. Yes. You know what I yes. mean? I mean, that's just a couple of yes. blocks where they blew up that guy's fucking house, you know, with the I know. bread truck and all that shit. Like yeah. in the 50s, like, oh my God. You know, yeah. what literal what would, escape rooms. Right. Yeah. What would people be? What would the, <laughs> what would the guys who died at the hands yeah. of the mob be thinking? You yeah. know, if a bunch of like yeah. dorky fucking. And hipsters are down there, uh-huh. like, oh yeah, you got to find the key to get out of this room. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. It's like shit. You were actually trying to get out of this room thirty yeah. years ago. All right, listen, I don't want to talk about South Philly all day, all, even though I could. Um, and we've already established off air that we are going to get a beer at some point, so uh, we can propose some locations to do that later, maybe. But let's talk about the exciting world of exchange traded funds. How's that for a segue? Um, look, nobody knows more about ETFs than you do. You're one of my favorite follows on Twitter. Um, you know, your Twitter feed is very data driven. You know, your shit. I have a few questions and I want to ask you some things for my listeners. Um, look, first and foremost, tell us what an ETF is so that people understand it the way that they should understand it. Yeah, I mean, the best description is from Reggie Brown in terms of simplification is it's a mutual fund with benefits. Right. Um, so, and the big benefits are that it trades on an exchange, so you can buy and sell at any time. With a mutual fund, you only can buy in or get out at the end of the day. So sometimes people like to get out at noon, at the price at noon, and not have to wait till the end of the day because the price could change. So definitely traders love that. Um, and you basically get the benefits of a diversified fund right so uh let's take the iShares brazil etf it's got all these brazilian stocks um and it's so it's diversified so if you had a bullish feeling about brazil maybe they have a new leader um you could buy that without having to know much about brazil and the stock market there or the fundamentals so and you can go on the, any exchange any brokerage account and just buy brazil and you're going to own like 25 to 40 local 
stocks there and you know multiply that times 2400 etfs and it's a beautiful thing so essentially they just let you trade anything um in in a in a diversified way if you are fundamentally looking at stock analysis you probably don't have any need for an etf you probably would just go trade stocks but for people who might not know everything about everything you might be a stock analyst who covers uh i don't know the tech industry you might not know anything about like china or healthcare that's where you might go for the etf and you might buy or sell the ETF that holds, say, a bunch of healthcare stocks or biotech stocks, or now they even got cancer immunotherapy stocks. I mean, it, it list goes on and on. So, I think the ETF allows people to trade and invest, sort of like economists, rather than you know fundamental bottom-up stock pickers. You can be basically be a macro strategist. And then for the buy and hold uh, crowd who used to use mutual funds like advisors, they like them because they're so cheap. So they'll just buy, like, say, the Vanguard. S&P 500, it costs three basis points, and they'll hold that for 10 years. So it's interesting. ETFs have this interesting mix of traders and buy-and-hold investors playing in the same sandbox and getting charged the same fee. And that's really, I think, the magic. And then you throw in the fact that they're tax-efficient. They don't distribute capital gains very often. There's a couple cases that do, but largely, I think less than 1% of ETFs on an asset-weighted basis will have capital gains this year um and that's people like that you don't avoid taxes you just get to defer them for when you want to uh feel them whereas a mutual fund you might just be sitting there and you get a tax uh, capital gains distribution so that's an added benefit so that's really the main drivers of what an etf is but essentially i guess i would just say it's an it's an it's a mutual fund namely an index mutual fund that trades on an exchange yeah, and you mentioned, look, there's 2,400 of them now. And so the way that I've used them, and you know, I trade probably a little bit more actively than most people, but the way I've used them is to get exposure to, you know, all of these weird kind of corners of the market where, you know, look, if I want to get exposure to emerging markets, you know, well, what the fuck am I going to do? You know, I'm not going and doing a bunch of stock research in Argentina and Brazil. Like, who has time for that? I fucking laundry I got to do. You know, sure. So I'll buy that EEM and, you know, and, and like you said, the Brazil is a good example, too. I mean, it's just it's great. And I feel like now, though, there's so many there's so many ETFs like some guy mm -hmm. eats a fucking donut in Belgium somewhere and ETF ticks up, you know, a penny, uh, you know, somewhere. Right. So is it is, the, the big question I want to ask is like, is there a risk of the tail wagging the dog with ETFs? Right. Say, say you have 15,000 stocks and you mm -hmm. have 2,400 ETFs, all of which are comprised of components that are equities. Right. At, yep. at, at what point do you get like the ghostbusters crossing the streams where like, you know, you yeah. create some kind of negative, like sonic boom shockwave in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a fair question. When when people bring up that, I usually bring up, well, okay, there's 4,000 stocks, right? And there's 2,400 ETFs. Um, the, of the 2,400, only, I think, 1,500 of them own actual U.S. equities. And of those 1,500, only like 50 are any, uh, of any size. So there's a lot mm. of just stuff that wouldn't even hold them or are just ETFs in oblivion. A lot of ETFs have under $100 million. Like they just... I don't know. They're just not popular. <clears throat> so of the 2,400, it's concentrated in, in a, a couple massive stud ETFs. So I would also bring up like, take like uh, words. There's 26 letters, but there's something like, you know, millions of words. But we only probably use like, I don't know, 400 words or 4,000 words. So the same deal. There's a lot of ETFs. There's a lot of indexes. Most of them just live in oblivion. So I don't think that really matters. Also, there's over... 4,000 mutual funds. Um, so you could make that argument with mutual funds. But for some reason, ETFs, I don't know, they tend to scare people a little bit. I don't know because they're growing quickly. Um, but the other thing I would point out about the tail wagging the dog is if you take those big ETFs or take all the assets in U.S. equity ETFs, you get to about uh, half trillion, something like that, maybe five trillion. But the stock market is $53 trillion. So uh, let's do the math here. What is that, 7%? So ETFs only own 7% of all the stocks. The rest of the stock market is owned by households, owned 45%. Mutual fund, funds own like 15%. Um, and then you've got like foreign investors own like 10, yada, yada. And down you get to like, you know, things like uh, pensions and stuff like that. So the stock market ownership, ETFs are still a minority. That said, they make up about 20 to 25% of all the equity trading every day. So I always say they punch above their weight in trading 
but they're they're less impactful than you think asset wise, just because of how much and how big the U.S. stock market is. Yeah, and of course, as you mentioned before, Vanguard. Uh, I guess the SPY charges you three basis points. For my listeners that aren't, uh, you know, financial professors, that is three hundredths of a percent. A basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. Um, let's talk about uh, the cost of owning ETFs. Obviously, you know, no financial product out there is free. Um, so let's talk. I, I know Vanguard uh, just from you know the precursory and uh, you know, surface level research I've done over the years. I know Vanguard, I think has like the cheapest, uh, net expense ratios of all ETFs, or most of them talk to me, tell my listeners what a net expense ratio means in layman's terms and sure. what's reasonable, not reasonable, what's worth paying up for, what some of the highest ones are and what some of the lowest ones are and what they can watch in terms of cost to them. Sure. So an, an expense ratio, I, I, the best metaphor I can use is it's like a termite. And it's in it's in it's eating away every day at the total pool of money in the fund. So like if if an expense ratio is just to make this simple, um, <clears throat> you know, there's 250 trading days a year. So every one of those is it will take an, a portion of the expense ratio or take a little tiny out of the total assets of the fund. So it's, it's not like it comes out one time a year. It comes out every single day, but in tiny, tiny portions. So the bigger the expense ratio, the bigger the termite that's going to nibble away your returns. Um, so this is part of the reason active managers have had problems because if you charge 1%, it's almost as if you have to make up a whole 1% to get even. Then you've got to outperform from there. And then if you have trading costs on top of that, they could be 1% a year. So you're getting way behind the starting line. Whereas an index mutual fund or an ETF like Van three basis points, that's basically nothing. I mean, there's that's almost, we'll call that zero fee. Yeah, it's negligible. You're, you're, that's buying the starting line. So in a lot of cases, people are just like, look, let me just walk into getting the market return um, for almost no fee, and I, I, I'll be happy with that. Yes, I'll have to, I'll have to watch as some, some manager gets a lot of attention for being the one that outperformed the market that year. But over time, like 80 90% lose. So, so a lot of people have just said, look, let me lock into – what effectively is the starting line or the overall returns of the market. Um, and an ETF, even though sometimes ETFs trade a lot, the portfolio in an ETF barely turns over. They rebalance, you know, maybe the total turnover is like 3% a year. So my point is there's no friction. There's no costs. You just basically buy the market. And that is a smash hit concept. And so most ETFs that people put money into are the ones that charge 0.03% or 0.05% or 0.07%. And so nowadays you can get a whole portfolio of U.S. equities, international equities, emerging markets, real estate, um, what am I missing, commodities even, uh, for all in fee of you know seven, six basis points. And that is sweeping the nation. And so even though we, we spend a lot of time talking about these crazy and wacky ETFs that are like high flyers, most of the big blob of money is moving towards that the Vanguard and the iShares, uh, cheap beta, as I call them, uh, in that portfolio, mm -hmm. those portfolios are really popular. And for obvious reasons, I think people are just sort of like, well, this is a good deal. It's a good value. They're serving up a lot for three basis points. And I'm pretty confident. I don't ever need to move it because when market goes up or down, I'm you know pretty sure that if, if I chase something, it will let me down. A lot of people have that experience of chasing it and then it lets you down. Um, and so they're just they just stay in it. And so a lot of the money that goes into this these cheap beta ETFs tends to be very sticky um, because usually th that money found it on its own. A lot of money in active mutual funds over the days was put in there by a broker who got a commission from the mutual fund. So there's not a ton of loyalty. So when you look at that that fee, I think that's almost one of the most important details of why ETFs are popular, especially among advisors and buy and hold investors. They love they love cheap ETFs, and they love, uh, you know, uh, especially ones from Vanguard and iShares. Those two companies make up like something like seventy percent of all the assets. Yeah, and for my listeners that are less experts in finance and more experts in smashing cans of natural light on their forehead uh, in a basement somewhere at a college party, Beta 
uh, is basically, you know, correlation to the overall broader market. So when you say ETFs that offer beta, what you're saying is ETFs that will, you know, track the market. Um, you know, that's a loose definition of it, but that's how it's being used. Just so everybody knows, in case you don't feel like fucking accessing your Investopedia financial dictionary today. Um, all right, look, so you sit around and you stare at ETFs all day and <clears throat> you provide data and um, analysis for Bloomberg and for the terminal. Uh, personally, what ETFs do you own and do you like to have in your own portfolio? Yeah, so um, in my I have my 401k, which there are no ETFs. ETFs aren't in 401k, so I own some index mutual funds in there. I think the ones I own are State Street because uh, we used to have Vanguard, but they now State Street has come in and they're actually cheaper. So Vanguard's very cheap, but there are a couple that are cheaper. So our company moved to State Street. So I own State Street index funds in my 401k. And then in my, we have an IRA and some other things for the kids. And in that, we have a Schwab account. So in that, we own four Schwab ETFs that are very Vanguardian, and they're what I would call cheap beta. In other words, they track the, the total U.S. stock market with all the stocks weighted by market cap, the total international market with all the stocks weighted by market cap, the total bond market, and so on. And that's an all-in fee of like five bips. Then on top of that, we do play around a little bit. So, and I think I'm like most people, there's a boring vanilla core, but then you, you play around a little bit just to keep yourself a little entertained. So my wife is really into value stocks. Like she's one of those people who will see GE trading at like 10 bucks and go, how can we not buy that? Uh, JC Penny, like she just loves these big, like old school companies that are just really beaten up. Um, that's her natural in inclination. And for me, sometimes I'll see something, a trend like cannabis or uh, cybersecurity, and, and maybe I'll jump on that that, that bandwagon or uh, you know uranium, uh, nuclear energy. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I like the themes a little bit. She likes the value stocks, but we just sort of like lightly dabble over there in those. You are like 80, 90 percent is that boring stuff. You're scratching me right where I itch because I love <clears throat> the uh, the YOLO ETF. And the MSOS are two ways to get exposure to cannabis. I think yeah. cannabis here, you know, it's gotten destroyed since February of 2021. The entire sector has just been pounded. And I think, you know, Bank of America predicts this will be a $300 billion market. I think it's going to become as ubiquitous as alcohol and as liquor stores eventually. Um, and I just, you know, I feel like that uh, YOLO and the MSOS, the cannabis, some individual cannabis names, specifically that's why I bought the ETF, though. I don't feel like fucking going through, you know, a million companies trying to figure out which ones are going to make it and which ones aren't. Sure. You know, who's got time for that? I told you I have laundry to do. The point is, yeah. you know, I think cannabis represents possibly something generational over the next, you know, decade. And I love uranium, too. I can't believe you mentioned both of those. I think that, you know, nuclear power sits at the middle of uh, a Venn diagram that I put in one of my articles, which basically is, you know, people on the left, uh, you know, with unrealistic energy expectations and people on the right with unrealistic energy expectations and everybody wants to be fucking ESG now. People are overlooking nuclear. It's right there. And I think they're just going to fall yeah. ass backwards into it over the next couple of years. And I think there will be a huge adoption of it. But enough about what I think. Um, now that we covered... Um, let me just ask you this. You know, you said, look, you have a soft core of passive investing. Would you say in general you are, you know, if you had to kind of put yourself into a box as a personal investor, would you say you're kind of like passive investor, like don't fight the Fed, you know, macro from a macro perspective, you're just trying to ride the wave up in general. Is that accurate? Yes. All because right. I, you know, I've seen March 2020 is a great example. You know, anybody who saw that coming, oh my God, there's this huge vi uh, virus hitting us. The stocks are getting killed. And you went short and you're like, oh, I'm going to make a ton of money. And then bam, the Fed steps in it's, and it's now up like 120% since then. Who in the hell knows what's going to happen? I mean, it's, it's just so hard to predict the future. You just talked about two themes where there's a lot of fundamentals in place. That is a, probably as close as you can get to like a good future outlook. But the general market, I mean, it's just such a crapshoot. So I think a lot of people, especially with their core nest egg, are like, I'm not fucking with that. I'm not I'm not going to try to day trade and get in and out of, right. of the market. Um, and I think that's probably why you see the money in the Vanguard ETFs and, 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 and index mutual funds is so sticky. 
they're just they're giving up on that. So um, I, I, I think, though, that people do like to speculate there's that bug in human nature. And that is why I think you see a lot of flows into things that are really wild, like crypto, ARC, which you've covered, uh, theme ETFs. So I think there is a – it's almost like instead of back in the day when you like sold one active manager from Fidelity and bought the T-Row and when the market sold, you got, you got oh, I have the wrong manager. Now it's like, look, I got the market. I don't care if it goes up or down. The way I'm going to actually have fun and market time is through these thematic outlooks or uh, crypto or NFTs or – Stuff that's just like really different and stuff I don't own in my portfolio. So I think that's sort of how most investors are these days. I think I'm somewhat in the mainstream uh, of that where I think when it comes to general market, people are just like, yeah, I, there, nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah, interesting. I appreciate that uh, perspective and delving into some of your personal thoughts on things because – uh, I didn't know if you were able to go there, but I appreciate the candor there. And of course, we had no preparation for this interview. We're just, you know, we're just saying whatever we want. Um, I want to ask now about ARC. Of course, you know, I've covered sure. ARC. I wrote uh, an article about it uh, just hours ago called the Elon Musk elevator down. And the, actually, you know what? I, I want to ask you one more question sure. about uh, ETF functions before we get into the ARC discussion which is sure. can you explain inflows and outflows to people so that sure. when people look at inflows and outflows to an ETF, they, they know what they're looking at and then how yeah. that can affect uh, the underlying components of an ETF and what an ETF holds and ultimately its performance? Yeah. Here's how flows happen. So there's an exchange with ETFs getting traded back and forth. And if there's enough people selling the Brazil ETF and there's enough people buying it, those are naturals. There's no need for flows. Basically, they just shift hands. However, let's say there is a new leader elected in Brazil, and there's a lot more demand for EWI, which is the Brazil ETF, I believe. It might be EWI. It is. Whatever. Yeah, it's EWI. Okay. It's EWI, you said, or why? I think it's e. I think EWI is Italy. I think, I think EWI EW. is Japan <laughs> or South Korea. We'll use EWI just – Brazil's EWZ, I think. I think Brazil's uh, EWZ. You're right. That's it. Okay. So there's a new uh, leader in Brazil. They're pro-business, right? And all of a sudden, everybody wants Brazil. So a lot of share. A lot of people are, are saying, "I want, e I want to buy EWZ." Buttons are getting clicked all over the country. And so if you're a market maker and you're getting all these orders for EWZ, you're like, "Shit, I, I there's not. I don't have enough inventory. There's not enough naturally on the market. I've got to go to the the wholesale warehouse and get more EWZ." So what has to happen is that market maker has to go gather all the stocks in EWZ and hand them in to iShares effectively, and iShares gives them new, uh, new shares of EWZ. And so the market maker then puts those shares into the market and is able to make a market. That, that process where they gave them the stocks and they got shares of EWZ, that created a flow. That would be an inflow. And if the reverse happens, that would be an outflow. And if you noticed in that story, it wasn't cash for the shares. It was literally giving the basket of stocks for the shares of the ETF. That's why ETFs are tax efficient. There's no cash exchanging hands and there's no tax event there. So that's a that's a sort of quick behind the scenes on why they're better tax-wise than a mutual fund. But that's essentially how a flow would happen. It starts in the grassroots and then it just overwhelms market makers and they got to go get new shares from the warehouse. And the warehouse is where the flows are reported. So just explain it again as simply as possible. What does the chain of command, what does the cradle-to-grave audit look like if I go and, you know, look, the EWZ has like $5 billion in assets, right? So say I want to buy a billion dollars worth of the e the EWZ sure. ETF, and I go out and, you know, I put in a, a market order for 200,000 shares or whatever it would take, or 200 million shares or whatever it would take, just theoretical. What, what yep. does that process look like again? So it, you you want to you're one fifth of the fund at this point? Yeah, yeah. Okay. In that case, you're going to call a market maker, and your that market maker will work with iShares, and you'll just you'll skip the stock exchange. You're going to go right to the warehouse. This is almost like going right to Costco's or something. <laughs> you're that big of a deal, and you're going to go, and they're going to arrange for how to go buy the stocks, exchange them, and then just give you the shares. And we've seen that happen. Some institutions, we've seen it happen where it actually doubles the assets in one day, uh, because they're because the ETFs are fungible. In other words, 
as long as you can get the stocks in the basket, you can create as many shares as you want of the ETF. So it's all about working with somebody to, to get that operational task done. And so essentially you, you would work with that person to gather up the stocks in the Brazil ETF, give them to iShares, and then they would just send that EWZ to your account. And that would be reported as one big giant trade volume-wise. And boom, the assets would grow by one-fifth the next day. And it would look like – and the flow chart would look like uh, – and then a boom, a spike. Right. That's how you know there was a big fish biting or an institution is it, it's an unnatural giant bar going way up. So now let's talk about outflows and what happens when a fund sees outflows and how that – you know, can it can it become a self fulfilling prophecy for a fund once it starts to see uh, outflows in names that it owns because they have to hit the bid of those names? Yeah, a little bit. Um, like I said, depends on how much the ETF owns. If it's junior gold miners or Arc Genomics, yeah, I think the flows are going to affect the price if there's enough outflows. If it's the S and P five hundred, eh, not really. Um, we, we have a chart in this book coming up, the Bogle Effect, which is which is coming out in April. Um, in that book, we have because people think, oh, if if ETFC inflows, then all the stocks in, in it are going to go up, and if the C outflows, right. all the stocks are going to. It's just not. There's so many examples of that doesn't happen. So like we track GE stock, which is a big holding in a lot of big funds. It's the, the, you can see the price moves completely independent to inflows or outflows. Um, so for the big ones, it's really fine. I mean, there's really very little to worry about, in my opinion given the fact that ETFs only own about 7% of said stocks. Um, but certainly they're a player. They're just not dominant. Right. But there are cases where there's a medium fish and a medium pond, like uh, some REIT ETFs or ARC Genomics or um, junior gold miners, where the ETF may own 10 20% of the stock. And in that case, the outflows will certainly have an effect on the price. Um, but there's other... There are other cases and other areas of the market where a hedge fund may own 20% too. Like it's not totally an ETF thing, but certainly if you're an owner and you're over that 10, 15% mark and you see outflows as a fund, you're certainly going to have an effect on the price. Okay. Now let's talk about fund distributions uh, and how that may differ from, you know, a dividend. And what the hell is a fund distribution? Look, you know, a lot of people saw a couple days ago that uh, ARC sold some names in order to fund their uh, distribution. What, what does that mean? Um, well, you're talking about dividends when the ETF pays out a dividend? I'm talking, yeah, but I mean, often they're called or distributions. Capital gains distributions. Right? Yeah, they're called distributions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So if you get a dividend from an ETF, that's great. I mean, that's just like income. It's And it's interesting, bond ETFs pay out dividends instead of, instead of coupons. They just it's, it's a coupon, but it's paid out as a dividend. So a lot of people like ETFs that pay out big dividends. My dad loves that. He's older. He likes stuff with like 5%, like REITs yeah. and stuff like that. In ARC's case, that's a distribution, and that's bad. Uh, like I said earlier, ETFs by an old, probably less than 1% of them pay any capital gains distributions. And so if you're paying out of distributions, that's rare, and it's not ideal. And so I think the cases where there's distributions – is typically in, in something that had just spectacular returns. Right. Um, and then they see outflows uh, and it's going down. That's a bad recipe. That's usually you're going to have a distribution. Well, why, it happens, it's happening well, in ARC now. And why would ARC be in, um, offering a distribution at the end of the year this year after getting royally porked? I'd have to look into it. It's probably because... I mean, could they be doing think. that to, to, to generate cash to take their fees? No, I, you know, I, I did. the thing with ARC is, and, and I'll say this, like, I, I just don't see anything nefarious. That's where I differ from most people. I see them as certainly a risky, high-flying type strategy, but, I mean, they make probably $300 million a year in expense ratio fees. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see them really needing the money um, or doing anything that's uh, – in fact, if anything, I think they're worried right now that their investors are going to just start to get because their investors have hang really tough they've really stayed in there i think they're worried that they, they might leave so it's perhaps if you see arc doing any kind of maneuvers now i think it would probably be in a way to try to reassure their investors somehow to hang in there and i think that's why kathy came out with that 40 percent annual return promise which i think was misguided but that's part of i think i think that's where their mindset is so i don't Mis think it's misguided is misguided the word you would use for that 
mean, no, let's get serious. I, I, uh, let's just get right into it, okay? I don't yeah, think okay, there's okay. anything nefarious going on, too. I don't think Kathy Wood's an evil person. I don't think she wakes up in the morning and goes, ah, how do, how do I scam people today? I don't think any of that shit's going on. You know, I think she is the product of a you know, completely batshit insane financial system that has been, yeah. uh, you know, that is so many standard deviations away from the norm as a result of sure. central banking fuckery that yeah. she, you know, her, whatever she does, her visionary picks, her innovation stocks, whatever she calls them, you know, most of which happen to be, you know, extremely aggressively valued uh, have yep. performed well as a result you know ipso facto she has been held out to be uh you know this wonderful uh, active manager and has been praised etc etc i don't think there's anything nefarious going on i think it's just a case of you know very very dumb luck fine right but so wait, l l l let me let me reframe that i don't I agree that the Fed is such a big factor in all. The Fed has – you could argue crypto wouldn't be as big of a deal without the Fed. I mean there's so many things of course. that are living off of the Fed bubble that have just sprouted almost like weeds or something off of this gigantic mound of Fedness. Um, I, I agree with you that the Fed has eliminated tail risk. Nobody really fears sell-offs anymore, and so it's allowed all these it, – it's also because of what we said. If people own a Vanguard 500 fund – and it does so well all the time, they get a little itchy. They're one, They're like, I want to do even better. So they start really buying into stuff that's really crazy. And I think um, in your case of Kathy, I know for a fact when she was at Alliance Bernstein and other places, she she's always been the same. She locks into a stock. She locks into the 10-year dream, and she will not sell it. It's like Kevin Costner in Tin Cup. She's just going to keep hitting the golf ball. That's who she is. And I think the reason she became popular is partially the Fed, but partially the changing portfolio. It used to be you owned a bunch of active mutual funds, and if if your if your funds arc, you're like, I'm out of this. So I'm going to go buy the value investor that's having a good year, and you just trade out. But because everybody's in the Vanguard 500 fund now, and they're not selling it ever, there's less reason to sell Kathy because they're like. I understand she's buying all these non-profitable tech companies that could blow up or you know have a really bad run or whatever. But but hey, <laughs> I already own all the fundamentally sound, serious investor stocks in my index fund. So I agree with the argument against Arc that these stocks are really you know they're volatile. We don't know what's going to happen with them. But the thing is, sometimes that argument is sent from like, well, you're not fundamentally sound investor kathy but i think most people already own the fundamentally sound stock so they agree with you they are they want arc for being wild and crazy and they want crypto and nfts and all this shit because it's crazy so i think crazy in fact we even had a note we wrote called passive investors colon here we are now entertain us so you got all these passive investors sitting on these boring ass vanilla portfolios which they know they can't touch to really realize the full <laughs> potential of them and they just want to be entertained and have some fun. And, I, you know, Kathy, um, uh, so the world turned and matched and the portfolios changed. And now Kathy fits nicely. I call it the shiny object lane. Sure. And it's a viable lane now. And so that's why she's kind of um, immune to downturns, bad publicity. It's it's amazing. Wow. Although th so I think that's why. So far. You're right. You know. So but far, still, so she far just... it's pretty good. 40% drawdown is pretty serious. I mean, I, I will say I think she probably has been stickier than most up to this point. But to your point, it's possible at some point people start well, to bail. She just gave back all of her funds outperformance versus its benchmark this year. Okay, so the top weighting in ARK, as you know, and ARKK is Tesla, right? The, yeah. The article I wrote, you know, just brings up the point that, hey, you know – your fund, your flagship fund was down 24% this year, while its top yeah. weighting was up 53%. Yeah. So what happens if Tesla takes a 20% haircut is the question that I'm asking. Yeah. Well, right? you'd hope and, that the other ones do better. But I, I, well, on the flip side, there was – yeah, sure. So, I mean I think – yeah. I mean if you look at the stocks in her portfolio though, and I, I tell people to do this, it's stuff like um, Roku. I mean 
Roku's not going anywhere. There may be a high flyer. No, but they're it's not. not. Um, what's another one? Coinbase. Coinbase. Zoom. Coinbase. Coinbase makes stockbrokers in, in the '70s jealous. That's how their margins are so nice. <laughs> um, it, by the way, crypto. The intermediaries in crypto are just making a killing. So Coinbase, I think, exemplifies that whole world. And you go down there, and I'm like, yeah, they're they're definitely non-profitable-ish, but they're certainly American companies that are – a lot of them are just pretty much established American companies. The thing about her fund, though, is if you do an active share analysis, which is if you take all the stocks in her fund and you basically see how much overlap there is with the S&P 500 or like VOO, which is the ETF tracking that, it's 2%. So again, I think when people are looking for something to decorate their boring vanilla meal with, they don't want more baked potatoes. They want yeah. hot sauce. They want M&Ms. I mean, yeah, and then, like, and then I guess it's just a question of your, of your risk profile. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and that's a fair point. You know, if you're looking to, you know, if you're looking for the investing equivalent of snorting coke off of a stripper's ass at <laughs> three o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas while chugging fucking Moe and driving drunk <laughs> down the Vegas strip, oh then like go for it. And look, I, yeah. I I swear to God, I will give her credit. I mean, look, she's made a sum of money that I will never make, you know, and will never make even 1% of my entire life. She has been an extraordinary success. No matter how you measure it, she's going to be fine. If ARC blows up tomorrow, she will be fine personally, you know, and so that has to be said. And, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, especially, look, my fucking investing returns aren't all fucking great. Actually, a lot of them suck. Uh, and so, you know, for me to be out here saying, well, you know, uh, look at this idiot, what she's doing. It's like, no, fuck me. You know, like I'm a loser. You know, I live, well, you, 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 I'm, in, I'm in a 400 square foot studio condo right now as we speak. Okay, 400. I'm doing this podcast and there's like six people in the building that can hear me talking right now. Like that's how small yeah. my fucking condo is. Anyways, so let's give her all that credit. I'm just trying to bring up the point that. Uh, you know, let, let me just talk about Coinbase real quick. You just brought it up. Their margins are incredible. Coinbase, you know, the intermediaries for crypto, the people that are taking fees off of transacting crypto. And this is interesting. You brought that up because this is something Peter Schiff talks about all the time. And I've brought up, too, is, you know, the adoption of crypto versus institutions just looking to make money off the fees and transacting it. And I think those are two different things. You know, if JP Morgan offers crypto trading on their desk it isn't necessarily because Jamie Dimon thinks that Bitcoin is going to replace gold. It's because he thinks that they can rip huge fucking fees off of it, right? Yes. So that's a good point to differentiate those things. But she also does have a fair amount of exposure to crypto, which is an asset class that, as far as I'm concerned, could just disappear yeah. at any point. I mean, what is your take on, on crypto? Yeah. Uh, crypto is like a seven, like a, I don't know, like a seven-dimensional object i just cannot get my head around it fully so i think it's an interesting technology some of the people involved are very smart um but i do think there's an element of religion to it i think there's an element of um uh hey my portfolio is so boring and it goes up 20 percent every year and i'm in a utopia state i want something i want the i want the coke on the well, I'm not going to repeat what you said, but I'm looking for some excitement. Just say hooker's ass. Uh, <laughs> say those words right now on my podcast. Yeah, no, I just think it's it feeds the looking for excitement thing, which I've always said, if the market tanks, crypto will tank worse. It, it's a high beta stock. It is not – the whole store of value thing is, I think, a little absurd right now. Maybe in 50 years it will be. But I think if you look at the numbers, we look at every drawdown. Crypto does way worse than the market. So I would look at crypto as an arc. I mean if you're buying it, you better expect some serious volatility. Um, in a sell-off. It's not going to save anything. Gold still, I think, is underrated as a store of value because it does its own thing, but generally when the market goes down, it's like flat. It might be up 1%, but it, it's it's not selling off worse than the market, that's for sure. Also, um, it so, exists. Yeah, and it has a long track record. I think the historical... Some people tend to write off things that have been around, like, I don't know, gold, the Bible. I think you got to really respect these things. They've been around for a long time, like I don't think you can just be like, oh, it sucks. It's over. It's I, I, I really I think there's um, crypto is just having a nice run. And when your price goes up, I think you feel like you own the, amplif uh, the megaphone 
so crypto kind of is like leading the conversation but yeah um I, I i don't know what to think but i'm trying to read up on it i i also think we cover it i feel like there's opportunity for analysts like me to cover it more um and some of the crypto community i gotta be honest is fun um i think like on twitter like some of them can be fun they use memes um and i think they that's important these days i think there's an element of they're able to break through the noise way better than the, like a i don't know a p a, sell-side analyst that Morgan Stanley, like somehow uh, some crypto person on Twitter is going to reach more people. Um, and because the, they're just kind of able to connect better. And uh, it's really interesting. So I think crypto has great advocates. Uh, and it's also a hot, you know, something that can be used to decorate boring portfolios. So it really, it's a, and it's a fascinating concept of like, just basically decentralization. That said, um, you can be DeFi in many other ways. And also the other thing that crypto is, a lot of people just want the price to go up. I'm not sure how many people are in it for the whole like real mission. Yeah. They just like to see the price go up. And I see that with ETFs. Everybody was sort of following us for like, okay, is the ETF going to be, is a crypto ETF coming out, the Bitcoin ETF? Most people, I could tell, were just salivating over it coming out because they want the price to go up. Right. I felt it. It wasn't like, oh, this is good for our mission. It wasn't like this sort of more sober. It was a lot of just like, pump it. You know? <laughs> And, you know, so I feel a lot of that sort of pumping and the thing with commodities, I'm writing a book on Bogle and his big thing was just that with commodities and which crypto is, I guess, very similar to, it's only worth what someone else will buy it. There is no sort of internal rate of return or intrinsic value that stocks have with cash flow and well, people getting up and creating value at corporations. And Eric, if an ETF is going to go from 28 to 56, does it really matter whether or not it's tracking, you know, uh, small cap companies in Brazil or the price of donkey shit in an Italian village somewhere that you never heard of. Like, no, it doesn't, you know, like investors want the return. Like you're saying. Yeah, that's it. I, I agree. And so, but to your point, what's interesting about crypto is sometimes it's sold as this like populist movement, but um, the intermediaries are making a killing. Like I try to tell people the Bitcoin ETF that came out from ProShares BITO. People are like, Oh, why with all the crypto people, why would you buy that shit? Um, I'm like, well, here's why. You can trade Bitto for 0.01% per transaction. That's right. the spread. That's 150 times cheaper than what you can trade Bitcoin for in Coinbase. 150. So I always say ETFs are if, – if they approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, ETFs live in – these issuers make no money. ETFs live in squalor. The whole industry makes uh, maybe like $10 billion a year, which is nothing in the scheme of things. ETFs are going to rock the crypto world a little. I think they're going to compress fees for some of these inter intermediaries, but the SEC has to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF first. I don't think the futures one will do it, but the futures one does point out my point of trading at least. You're going to pay 1.5% on, on Coinbase, or you can trade Bitto on any exchange for right. one basis point. Well, and I got to give you a lot of credit too, because I think you're right that the crypto community, first off, they are fun. You know, I mean, there's a lot of bullshit and a lot of chicanery and a lot of fucking nonsense. All right. And all you got to do, I've written about it. All you got to do is go back and watch Alex Mashinsky talk to Peter Schiff on that kick code debate that they did, you know, saying, oh, Bitcoin pays a yield. It's like, you know, fuck off. But anyways, yeah. there, there's a lot of nonsense like that. But you're right. They are fun. A lot of them are younger. They're riled up. They're pissed at central banks. They're starting to understand the system they're you know the there are a whole generation of investors that understands what's going on with central banking behind the scenes in a way that you know we never did 10 20 30 years ago you know imagine being 18 years old and grasping what the hell is going on in the world of central banking certainly that would have altered the trajectory of uh, of my life because i would have been pissed off a lot sooner and who the hell knows you know what would happen i would drink a lot of it's fucking interesting so you, you were in a punk rock band i do think there's some of that with crypto it's like this is their punk yeah. rock band yeah you're right you're right there was another point it's their outlet for rage every young every generation needs an outlet to say fuck you and for me, it was. I would go to bars, listen to fucking Nirvana. Like, I, I really, I partied. I, you know, and we would make fun of old people. I mean, I, I think every generation <laughs> has it. For me, it was more, it was music. Even though I was in a band, I really loved, um, you know, uh, that era of music in the 90s. And um, it felt like ours, and it was really sort of, it definitely had a lot of angst in it. Um, and yeah. to, I think this is, this is their sort of grunge rock or something in a way. Um, I know there's more to it, but I do agree. It's tapping into that young punks, this punk spirit that young people have. 
But then the question is going to be, you know, will the powers that be, will the machine that you're raging against, uh, you know, I mean, so much of the Bitcoin argument is that DeFi and decentralization is going to, you know, it's going to create this new axiom where central banks, you know, become irrelevant and where the gov, you know, what the government says becomes irrelevant. And, you know, is, is that, is that a reasonable scenario? I mean, given, given the history of, of the world, I mean, are, yeah. the, are the people in positions of power going to willingly lay down their arms and say, Oh yeah. Like, you know, you're right. You know, 19 so year old Tyler, come on in and, you know, I just, it's like, fuck, I don't think, I don't think they're going to let it happen. Yeah, this is the big question because this is the big Bitcoin bull case for the long term. And, and are you really believing all this? And here's the way I kind of see it now. And it was highlighted when Trump came out and said crypto's bullshit right after Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren did. And I'm like, man, if those three are agreeing on something, um, what's going on? And I realized really what's going on here is that I call it the boomerati. Um, you know, that's why Biden kept Powell, even though Trump had Powell. It's like it's really wealthy boomers who have all the money. It, it, that transcends politics. And they like the central banks. They like being mega wealthy. They love it. And so they're never as long as they're in power, they're going to keep being anti crypto in their hearts. Right. And the young people are going to be like, we're left out of this. We don't own any of the stock market. Well, You've blown it all up. And but here's the thing. At some point, those boomers are going to pass on all that wealth in the form of inheritance. Well, that that may silence a lot of crypto people. They'd be like, shit, I like dollars now because all of a sudden they're going to own a ton of shit and a ton of stocks. And they're going to, you know, there's a lot of wealth transfer about to happen. It's not like the, like the boomers can take it with them. And so that'll be interesting to see is if, you know, crypto people, maybe they get married, they have a job, they start um, having bills, they have kids, they get older, they lose a little of that punk spirit, they get some inheritance. Will they sort of do what every other generation has and sort of just sort of slowly sell itself out to the system. Yeah. The people that think that it's going to overthrow the system remind me of uh, those sovereign citizens that, you know, get stopped at like a traffic stop and they're like, uh, well, you know, you, you, uh, sir, you were speeding. Well, actually I'm not because I wasn't driving. I was traveling and I'm not a citizen of, you know, Texas. I'm a citizen of, of the free land. And I have the natural right to travel uninhibited And the cops. Like just get in the fucking squad car, right? You're under arrest. You know, then they go tell that shit to a judge too. You know, you always see him in the fucking like magistrate court. You can see those clips on YouTube. The guy gets yeah. up there. He's got some big, long speech written down that some other asshole gave to him like here. Say this yeah. in front of the judge. They can never arrest you. You know, but, well, Your Honor, uh, uh, I was I wasn't I wasn't driving. I was traveling, and uh, you know, I, I you know yeah. I don't have <laughs> you don't have agency he, he, over me. And the judge is like, you know, fucking, you're remanded to the county jail. Thirty days. You can think about all that dumb shit you just said in there. Yeah. You know, did you do you ever see the the show Mister Show back in the day with uh, David long Cross long time ago, long time ago? They had a sketch where David Cross played one of those Unabomber guys. He's like. I want to rebel and create my own society. I want to secede. And he created this place called Dayville. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I have my own land. And he, and he started doing all this stuff, and he had his own currency. And, uh, and, he, and he started to get lonely, and he, he couldn't hunt all the food he needed, so he started getting hungry. So he, he ventured to this foreign land called America, which was basically like 100 yards down the street. <laughs> and he went to a food store, and he's like, oh, my God. It, had, it was utopia. They had all kinds of foods. And it was like he – rediscovered how good that he had it right? right because there's some element to that i think that will happen when that wealth transfer happens in my opinion but i could be wrong i just well, that's part of it but, that's what all um, these campus marxists need too you know they just need to stop and look around like you know the left hand's holding the iphone the right hand's holding the starbucks fucking yeah things are pretty good you know what i mean you're standing in the I, middle I, of penn's campus uh i will looks say pretty good there is one thing i'd like to get your comment on which is the Fed has really emboldened the crypto case to even people like me who don't know crypto that well. Like the Fed clearly will not let the market go down. They're just not going to do it. And it's it's interesting to me. And obviously there's the pro fiat crowd and then there's the sort of anti-Fed crowd. And But what what's, what's interesting to me is something Michael Green, who I don't agree with on a lot of his passive stuff, but I we have fascinating conversations. He's the Professor Plum guy on Twitter. He brought up this fact that I can't get out of my head is that the stock market is now America's retirement fund and the bond market for that matter. Yeah, so you're right. all these households and, 
And the boomers own like 60-70% of all the stock and bond market, and they're in power. Why on earth would they ever let it go down? And that to me is the one thing that emboldens crypto's case to me is if you're going to have a Fed essentially and all the big asset managers who are boomers who run them calling the Fed when they have problems like maybe PIMCO and BlackRock. So anytime the market goes down, they're going to just make sure it doesn't well, because that's their the, money. The, the Fed, the crypto market is a result of the Fed trying to keep Correct. the equity market higher. It's the, it, the crypto market is the result of the excess liquidity in the system. You know, so if you think the Fed is going to turn around and try to bail out cryptos at that point, like, you know, I, I think that's and, insane. And this is where it's ironic. Let's say, let's say AOC or let's say Ron Paul was appointed the Fed chair today. Right. Which is a fucking crazy thought. <laughs> so let's just say that happened. Let's say Ron Paul was president, God forbid, or whatever. Maybe that's good. So Ron Paul's president, and the Fed does nothing. It, crypto might go away. Like, in other words, if crypto if is a result of a Fed that's way too interventionist, if you made the Fed completely uninterventionist, stocks would crash probably 70%. Yeah. Crypto would crash 90%. Yeah. And then everybody would slowly buy back into like BE and shit like that. And crypto might be done because they would have, in other words, can crypto survive if the fed did turn in, uh, if the fed did like really back off and just let the market live on its own. And a Ron Paul was elected. That's my question. So I would say the biggest risk to the stock market is a Ron Paul type person or a Bernie Sanders type person getting elected in my opinion. And, and you know what? You're right. I mean, it's the monster that the fed created crypto. You know, it's like uh, when Batman. But in a weird way, it's like when they push fucking the Joker into though. the into the vat of chemicals in Batman One. You know, and then he comes back. <laughs> you know, and says to Michael Keaton, he's like, you know, you pushed me into that vat of chemicals. You know, and that wasn't easy to get over. And don't think I didn't try. You know, <laughs> it's the same deal. You know, you made me right. Like the Fed yeah. made the crypto market. Yes, there's a codependency that I think is interesting to watch. Yeah, definitely. Listen, Balchunas, I knew this was going to be a great podcast. I don't really know why. Uh, I just had a feeling that you were going to be great to talk to. I want to have you back on, like, regularly, if that's okay with you. Um, You know, I have had some uh, negative experiences in the past, Mr. Balchunas, where people that work for financial uh, outlets have come on the podcast, and then I've never heard from them again. Uh, I'm not going to mention any (laughs) names. Guy Adami, but you know, if something happens where you are uh, issued a demerit at work for uh, speaking honestly and openly with me here, uh, just I would like you to know it's been real. And if that doesn't happen, please continue to put your career at risk. Come back on the podca- uh, podcast often. Uh, I love talking to you, and I really, really appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, I, you know. They're pretty liberal. I'm, you know, allowed to go on pod. I've been on some crypto podcasts and whatnot. So this has uh, all been great. And hopefully, um, you know, especially on the ETF, some, some of the listeners got some quick education on, on ETFs, which, uh, uh, you know, I think are, are really great tools for retail investors. Well, we got a lot of shit to watch in 2022. So I'll be stoked to talk to you about it. And I uh, just want to say thanks again. And we'll talk soon. All right, man. All great right. To be thanks again. Talk to you later, man. That was the one, the only, Mr. Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg Intelligence, ETF expert, all-around genial financial analyst, and Philadelphia resident, lives in fucking South Philly, too. There's, like, nothing not to like about this guy. Got his picture right here. Great fucking head of hair. I'm very jealous. Uh, Didn't bring that up on the podcast, but maybe we could talk about that next time, you know? Tips for styling your hair, tips for getting hair to regrow, uh, other things like that. At this point, folks, I have no idea what I'm talking about. It was lovely to speak to you today, and I will be back soon. But for right now, I'm the fuck out. Peace.